To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Queensville, Ontario in the mid-1980s was a quiet and peaceful place. A place where nobody locked their doors at night. On a seemingly ordinary day in October 1983, Christine was dropped off by the school bus. The nine-year-old little girl searched her house for a nickel to go to the store and buy some gum. With a nickel in her hand, she ran to the store to buy her treat. Little did anyone know that this routine trip would unleash a nightmare that would grip the hearts of all who knew her. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 188, The Murder of Christine Jessup. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales and leave a positive review. Before we get to this week's episode, we've got three new supporters that I want to thank. Thank you so much to Wendy H., Jerry L., and Samantha G. for becoming the show's newest supporters. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Queensville, Ontario is a small country town far south of the noisy and crowded city of Toronto. And back in the mid-1980s, Queensville was a place with only a handful of homes clustered around a grocery store, a church, a playground, and a cemetery. That was it. Queensville, Ontario was the kind of country village where most people left their doors unlocked. Why would they need to lock their doors when everyone knew each other? All the kids went to the same school, everyone shopped at the same general store, and everyone attended the same church on Sunday mornings. So if something terrible happened in Queensville, everyone knew about it. And relatively quickly, everyone in town knew who did it. But all of that suddenly changed one day in October 1984. The once quiet, safe, and rural town of Queensville, Ontario, would forever be changed by the events that happened on Wednesday, October 3rd, 1984. On Wednesday, October 3rd, nine-year-old Christine Jessup arrived home on the school bus. Since Queenville was so small, the bus driver dropped off each kid at their own doorstep. Earlier that morning, Christine's music teacher had handed out recorders, and Christine was excited to get home and show her mom Janet 
and her older brother, Kenny. But when she got home and opened the front door, she was surprised. They weren't there. Her family was usually there when she got home from school, but Christine didn't worry. Although she was only nine years old, her mom and older brother often left her home alone for just a few hours. After all, it was Queensville. Nothing ever happened there. So when Christine got home that afternoon and realized her mom and older brother weren't there, she didn't think twice. Christine decided to go to her bedroom in search of a nickel. If she could find a nickel, she could take it down to the corner store down the street and buy herself a piece of gum. After she found a nickel in her room, she walked down the street to the grocery store, the only grocery store in town. Christine had plans to meet up with her friend, Leslie Chipman, at the park later that afternoon, sometime around 4 o'clock p.m. The park was directly across the street from the corner store, so all Christine had to do after she got the gum was walk across the street to meet up with her friend, but she never made it. Leslie Chipman got to the park at exactly 4 o'clock. She was never the kind of person to be late for a park play date, and neither was her friend Christine. So Leslie was a bit surprised when her friend Christine wasn't there. Leslie decided to sit down and wait for her friend. But no matter how long she waited, Christine wasn't coming. Christine's mom, Janet, arrived home about 10 minutes later, around 4.10. Her and Christine's older brother, Kenny, had spent the day in Toronto, about 50 miles north of Queensville, visiting Bob Jessup, Janet's husband and Christine and Kenny's father, who was in Toronto East Detention Center serving an 18-month prison sentence. At the time, Janet didn't think that her nine-year-old daughter was old enough to visit a state prison. So it was usually only she and Kenny who went to visit. And that particular day was no different. While Christine was at school, they drove north to see Bob. When Janet and Kenny arrived home a little after four o'clock, they were surprised Christine wasn't home, just like how she was surprised that they weren't home a little bit earlier. They saw her school book on the counter and the mail in the newspaper had already brought inside, but no sign of Christine. About 45 minutes later, around 5 o'clock p.m., Janet decided to walk across the street to the park to see if she was there. She knew that her daughter liked to go to the park and sometimes meet up with friends, just like Leslie Chipman, and maybe that's where she was. So Janet left the house and walked to the park but still no Christine. She then walked through the cemetery directly across the street. Still no Christine. When she returned home, she immediately picked up the phone and called all of Christine's friends, hoping that one of them might know where she was. She called Leslie, the girl that she was supposed to meet at the park. But Leslie had no idea where Christine was. In fact, Leslie asked if she knew where Christine was. Janet started to worry. She didn't automatically assume the worst, but this behavior was unusual. It wasn't like Christine to be somewhere without telling her mom where she was or when she would be home. She knew her daughter was independent and responsible, so this behavior was just completely out of character. When nighttime came around and there was still no sign of Christine, 
Janet decided that it was time to call for help, so she called the York Regional Police. Anytime there is a case involving a missing child, especially as young as Christine was, nine years old, the police take it seriously. In cases involving missing children, time is critical. The longer the child is missing, the higher the chances of something bad happening. In fact, according to crime data, in 76% of missing child homicide cases, the child was killed within three hours of the abduction. So, if Christine had been abducted, they needed to find her quickly. But not all cases of missing children end up as homicide cases. In reality, most cases involving missing children involve family members. Someone in the child's family is responsible for the kidnapping. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent. Random abductions are far less common. But in Christine's case, that didn't seem to make much sense. Her mother, Janet, was the one who reported her missing, and her biological father was miles away in a Toronto prison, so neither one of them could have been involved. The police took the case seriously because Christine wasn't the type of kid to just run away. Often when kids go missing, it's because they run away. But Christine had no reason to just run off, and she hadn't ever run away before. But when Janet called the York Regional Police Service to report her nine-year-old daughter missing, they didn't have any type of resources that would be needed to work this type of case. They only had a handful of sworn police officers in the department, and in fact, they only had one officer for every 860 residents, which back in 1984 weren't many people. They simply didn't have a missing child unit. They didn't even have a major violent crime unit. A place like Queensville didn't need one. That's because no major crimes really happened there. So when Janet called to report her daughter missing, they had no idea what they were getting into. When police officers arrived at Janet's house, they lacked any type of experience. Not long after Janet had called, an officer showed up to the house. But this particular office was completely clueless on how to investigate this. Instead of being careful to preserve evidence or anything else in the house, the officer started rummaging through everything. He touched all the doorknobs and windows throughout the house without wearing any type of gloves. He looked around Christine's bedroom and touched all of her belongings. He pretty much did everything wrong from an evidence preservation standpoint. But it wasn't necessarily their fault. The police weren't trained or didn't have any experience to handle a case like this, a case of a missing child. So unfortunately, if Christine had been abducted, critical evidence would have either been destroyed or potentially compromised by the police department's lack of experience. The police set up a command station at a nearby fire station and enlisted the help of any Queensville resident who wanted to lend a hand. And almost immediately, dozens of people gathered around to help look for Christine. The police and group of volunteers searched everywhere. They went knocking door to door to see if anyone in the area had either heard or seen anything. They searched fields. They searched the woods around the Jessup's home. But nothing. 
Christine had simply vanished. Over the next several weeks, the search for Christine only intensified. No one could understand how a nine-year-old girl could have simply gone missing in a flash. One moment, she's buying gum across the street, and the next, she disappears without a trace. But how exactly could this happen in a place like Queensville? It was such a small, rural place where no one locked their doors at night. Everyone knew each other. So there was this eerie feeling early on that someone from Queensville knew something. Someone had to know what happened to Christine. Christine's father, Bob Jessup, was temporarily released from prison so that he could help in the search. The prison officials had granted him a short release so that he could help and be with his family while they all hoped she would return home safe. And as soon as he was released, he and Janet pleaded with the public. They asked anyone with information to come forward as quickly as possible so that if someone had kidnapped her, there was still a chance she might still be alive. But the public pleas didn't lead them anywhere. It wasn't until the police started looking into people who knew the Jessup family that they received their first tip. When Bob was released from prison, he provided the police with the names and phone numbers of anyone who had been over to the house in the last couple of years. They also provided a list of people who had been allowed into the house without anyone else being home. The hope was that someone close to the family knew where Christine was, because at that point, it had to be someone the family knew. Queensville just wasn't the type of place to have a stranger abduction. So the police hoped that if the family provided a list of people they knew and a list of people who had been inside the house, they could find a possible suspect. One of those names on the list was Calvin Hoover, a family friend who previously worked with Bob. The day after Christine went missing, Calvin's wife, Heather Hoover, drove to Queensville to be with Janet. She wanted to be with her and help provide any support that she could. So when the police came across Calvin Hoover's name on Bob's list, they headed straight over to speak with Heather. When the police sat down and talked to her, Heather said she had been at work the day Christine went missing, and she said she assumed her husband, Calvin, was also at work all day because he wouldn't be anywhere else. So after that, the police left and went back to interview everyone else on the list. By Christmas 1984, three months had passed and Christine was still missing. Hope for a happy ending was beginning to fade. Christine's family started mentally preparing for the worst. On December 31, 1984, New Year's Eve, most people were getting ready to ring in the new year, but not the people of Sutherland, a place a little over 30 miles away from Queensville. Fred Patterson and his two daughters were out looking for their dog on a large wooded property next to their home. While looking for the family dog, they stumbled upon something slightly off the main trail. From far away, it looked like a pile of trash next to a half-dug pit. But when they got closer, 
they realized it was much more than just a pile of garbage. There was a body, a dead body. What did the Pattersons find within the darkness? And what else lay lurking in the shadows? Stay tuned as the truth unravels and the horrifying tale unfolds. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Once Fred Patterson and his daughters realized a body was on the property next to theirs, they called the police. Officers quickly arrived and searched through the pile of trash. And that's when they discovered the body of a badly decomposed young girl. The body of nine-year-old Christine Jessup. Her little body was covered in stab wounds. She had been stabbed multiple times in her chest, and some of them were deep enough that they penetrated her vertebrae. She was still dressed in the same outfit that she wore nearly three months earlier when she went missing. A beige turtleneck sweater with a blue pullover and a blouse with missing buttons. Next to one of her feet was her underwear, a clue that she had been sexually assaulted. Also lying in the grass beside her body was a recorder, and on the recorder were the words, Christine Jessup. Word quickly traveled back to Queensville that the body of a young girl had been found on a wooded property underneath some trash, and Christine's family quickly put together the dots. Their worst fears realized. A monster abducted her that day and then killed her. The day after Christine's body was discovered, the Durham Regional Police took over the investigation on January 1st, 1985. Since her body was discovered in Durham, they now had jurisdiction over the case and they were in charge of figuring out what happened. Almost immediately, there was intense public pressure to find her abductor and killer. People want answers whenever a young girl goes missing and is ultimately found dead. And they want justice. One of the first questions that puzzled investigators was the location. Why there? This particular place wasn't far from Queensville, but it wasn't close either. And like Queensville, there wasn't much there except for farms. So it seemed like an unusual place to dump a body, but maybe the perpetrator had some connection there. The Durham Regional Police broke up into two teams of detectives, 
Whichever team produced more leads would be in charge of the investigation. So every detective on the police force wanted to be in charge. This became one of the biggest cases in the area to try and solve. So every detective looking to move up in the ranks wanted to be in charge. After about a month and a half after Christine's body was found, the Durham Regional Police had their first promising suspect. In February 1985, they asked Christine's mom, Janet, to list anyone she thought might have been involved. Maybe the family had some enemies. Maybe there was a creepy neighbor. Or maybe they saw something strange at the corner store one day. So Janet handed over the police a list of possible suspects. After reviewing the list, the police started to narrow in on one of the names, Guy Paul Morin. Guy was described by Janet as their, quote, weird neighbor. Although she didn't really have any reason to suspect that he was involved in her daughter's murder, she just thought that Guy was a little strange. Guy was one of the only people from Queensville who didn't come out to help look for Christine, and this bothered her. Everyone else in the community had pitched in to help look for her, but Guy never did. So Janet, combined with pressure from the police, threw his name on her possible hit list. Now, Guy didn't fit the typical child abductor or killer profile. In fact, he was probably described as the exact opposite. He had no criminal record, The only blemish on his record were a couple speeding tickets. He didn't smoke or do drugs. He didn't drink alcohol. He liked to play the clarinet and saxophone. And most people who knew him described him as kind and a little bit quiet. He wasn't what anyone would describe as a child kidnapper or murderer. But the police were still interested in speaking with him because Janet had provided his information. So about a week after Janet provided the police with Guy's name, they went to speak with him on February 22nd. Now, initially, their conversation was casual. The police told Guy that they were going back and speaking with everyone who knew the Jessup family. They wanted to see if he remembered anything about the day that Christine went missing. When the detectives asked Guy how well he knew Christine, he said he didn't really know her besides just being a neighbor. She was over 16 years younger than he was, so there wasn't really a need to know her or spend any time together. She was nine and he was in his 20s. Investigators then asked if he had ever been over to the Jessup's house. He said he had that he had only been there once. He said he went over to the Jessup's house to help fix their furnace, but that was it. And he told investigators that he didn't even remember if Christine was home or not when he went over there. When they asked him about where he was on the day that Christine went missing, he told them he was at work. At the time, he worked as a sander at a furniture manufacturing facility over 30 miles away. They also asked him why he didn't come help look for Christine. Everyone else from Queensville came out to help, but he didn't. But he had an explanation for that too. He said the Jessups never asked him to. 
He said he would have if his neighbors had come over and asked him to come help search, but since they never asked, he never volunteered. Throughout their entire interview, Guy never once confessed to anything or made any statements about being involved. But the investigators did find a couple of his statements a little strange. For one, Guy made a comment, quote, All little girls are sweet and beautiful, but grow up to become corrupt, end quote. He also reportedly commented on where Christine's body was discovered. According to the investigators, he mentioned something specific about the exact location. So they found it odd that he would know anything about a location that he never admitted going to, and he particularly made a comment about the location that wasn't publicly released. But despite not having any real, credible evidence against him, the investigators kept digging. And the more and more they interviewed him, the more they wondered if they had their suspect. He had gone from being the weird neighbor who played the clarinet to now becoming a potential suspect. A few weeks later, the cops devised a plan to get a strand of Guy's hair. When Christine's body was recovered, they found a few pieces of hair stuck in her necklace, which they assumed belonged to her killer. So they wanted to get a sample of Guy's hair and compare it to the hair stuck in the necklace. If it matched, they have their killer. Guy had plans to play in a small concert with his jazz group. When he got to the concert, he found out that one of his bandmates' daughters and a few of her friends one of whom happened to be an undercover cop, were doing a cosmetic class project on hair analysis. So the girls asked everyone in the band if they could provide a few strands of their own hair for this so-called class project. Guy agreed and turned over a few strands of hair, completely unaware that he was actually giving his hair to an undercover cop. The strands of hair were handed over to the lead detectives handling Christine's case. They were then sent to the Center of Forensic Science, where they were analyzed by scientists specializing in hair analysis. During the mid-1980s, hair analysis and criminal investigations had become relatively popular despite its shortcomings. On the outside, Hair analysis seemed like a promising subfield of forensic science. If a strand of hair was found at a crime scene, that hair could be matched to a suspect. But on the inside, hair analysis is far more complicated than that. And some would argue hair analysis, when it comes to criminal investigations, is simply junk science. In Christine's case, the investigators took hair analysis very seriously. Although Christine's necklace that contained the hair had been exposed to the elements for at least three months before it was discovered, it was still compared to Guy's hair. When the scientists were done comparing the two samples, they came to one conclusion. According to them, the hairs found entangled in the necklace and Guy's hair were, quote, microscopically similar, end quote. 
As soon as the lab said the hairs looked similar underneath a microscope and were the same color, this was good enough for detectives, and they arrested Guy Marin. Do the police finally have their prime suspect? Is this the long-awaited justice the world has been seeking? But wait, there's a twist you won't believe. Stay tuned. Police arrested Guy Marin on April 22, 1985. Later that night, the police searched his home and took additional samples of blood, hair, and saliva. After he was arrested, he was taken down to the police station, where he was interrogated for over six hours. And throughout this entire interview, Guy maintained his innocence and said he had nothing to do with Christine's murder, despite what the hair evidence suggested. Guy's trial began on January 7, 1986. The biggest piece of evidence for the Crown was the hair evidence. In fact, some people argued that that was their only evidence. Guy never confessed to anything, and there wasn't really any other evidence linking him to the case. So almost the entire investigation rested on this hair analysis. Throughout the four-week-long trial, the jury heard expert testimony suggesting that a hair found stuck in Christine's necklace matched Guy's hair sample and that three strands of hair found in Guy's car, quote, matched Christine's hair. The experts also testified that several fibers located on Christine's clothing, as well as her recorder case, could have come from Guy's home or from his car. The jury also heard from two of Guy's cellmates from jail. One of these cellmates testified that Guy had confessed to him about the murder, although Guy denies ever doing so. He said he never told his cellmate that. Throughout the trial, Guy's defense maintained that it was impossible for Guy to have left work and arrive at Christine's house with enough time to kidnap her. Based on Guy's timesheets at work, he clocked out at 3.32 p.m., but he worked over 45 minutes away from Queensville. So according to the defense, it would have been impossible for Guy to clock out from work at 3.30 p.m. and return to kidnap Christine before her mom came home a little after 4. Guy's defense lawyers also argued that the hair evidence was junk science. They told the jury that the hair and fiber evidence proved nothing. The defense had their own experts testify who disagreed with the Crown's expert hair analysis. Four weeks after the trial started, the jury reached a verdict on February 7, 1986, and the ruling surprised the Crown. They found Guy not guilty. They didn't believe the hair and fiber evidence. So Guy was acquitted and released from jail. But that wasn't the end of Guy's legal battles. In fact, it was only the beginning. On March 4, 1986, the Attorney General of Ontario launched an appeal on Guy's acquittal. The Crown argued that the trial judge made a mistake directing the jury about the meaning of reasonable doubt and that the acquittal should be thrown out. 
Over a year after the Crown filed its appeal, the Court of Appeal issued a ruling in June 1987 and sided with the Crown. They agreed that the trial court judge made a mistake and that Guy should be retried. Guy and his attorneys tried to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court of Canada, but the court dismissed his appeal in November 1988. Guy Marin was forced to face a second murder trial. The second trial began on May 28, 1990. The new jury heard relatively all the same evidence the first jury heard about the hair and fibers. But the second jury came to a much different conclusion than the first. On July 30, 1992, Guy was found guilty of first-degree murder. The jury in that case believed the hair and fiber evidence. The so-called junk science got the conviction. Immediately after his conviction, Guy launched an appeal. He gained the support of a grassroots organization that helped provide financial assistance for his request. The organization helped to pay for his appeal and raise money for his bond if granted. On February 9, 1993, Guy was granted bail and his appeal accepted. After his release on bail, the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, now known as Innocence Canada, got involved and agreed to support him. The first thing Innocence Canada challenged was the Crown's evidence about the hair and fiber. But a few days before they were scheduled to present their arguments about the forensic evidence to the Ontario Court of Appeals, new DNA test results came in. Before 1995, several attempts were made to perform DNA testing on the semen stains found on Christine's underwear. But all the attempts to obtain DNA weren't successful. Remember, it's the late 1980s and early 1990s. DNA testing and criminal investigations was nowhere near as sophisticated as we are today. So up until that point, they could never successfully pull a DNA sample from the semen stains. But everything changed in 1995. Before Innocence Canada was scheduled to argue the case in front of the Court of Appeals, DNA tests revealed that Guy couldn't have killed Christine. His DNA didn't match the DNA from the semen stain. After being wrongfully accused and convicted for almost a decade, Guy Marin was officially acquitted on January 23, 1995. The Ontario Court of Appeal official set aside his conviction and entered an acquittal instead. After all of these years, Guy Marin was finally labeled an innocent man. But if Guy Marin didn't murder Christine Jessup, then who did? For the next 25 years, the murder of Christine remained unsolved. The only fact that remained true, Guy was innocent based on new DNA testing. By 2020, the Toronto police were now in charge of the investigation. The Durham police had been unsuccessful in finding Christine's killer after all of these years, so it was handed over to Toronto a department with more resources and experience. 
Toronto police had recently heard a lot about forensic genetic genealogy. They heard all about all of the cold cases being solved in the U.S. So investigators wondered if genetic genealogy could be used in finding Christine Jessup's killer. The plan was to extract DNA from Christine's case and submit the DNA to various DNA databases. Once it was uploaded to the database, they could look for familial matches or family members. And from there, they could use good old-fashioned genealogy research to construct the suspect's family tree. It's a tedious work, but it can pay off big time if it's performed correctly. In Christine's case, Toronto investigators teamed up with Othram, a private lab specializing in forensic genetic genealogy in the United States. Genetic genealogy had never been performed in Canada before. So if they could solve Christine's murder, the case would have tremendous implications for Canada's cold case investigations. But if it failed, little to no options remained. Once Toronto detectives decided to partner with Othram in the U.S., they sent the little amount of DNA left in the case to Texas. Othram then performed its signature forensic-grade genome sequencing on the DNA sample to generate a genealogical profile of the suspect. Although it had been decades and the DNA sample was severely degraded, Othram was still able to build a profile. Once they had a DNA profile, Othram sent it back to Toronto so that investigators could perform genealogical research to hone in on a suspect. They were able to identify thousands of the killer's relatives, but they noticed that one particular last name seemed to stick out. Hoover. After months and months of digging into people's backgrounds with the last name Hoover, they found someone. They found the suspect's biological mother. Through forensic genetic genealogy, Toronto investigators named Calvin Hoover as Christine's killer. His DNA 100% matched the DNA obtained from the semen stain on her underwear. Without a doubt, Without a question, he was the killer. As soon as investigators had named Calvin Hoover as the suspect, they immediately went out to arrest him. But there was one problem. He was dead. Calvin Hoover died in 2015. He committed suicide by intentional carbon monoxide poisoning. Although it took years, decades even, and one wrongful conviction to finally get to the real suspect, Calvin Hoover was no stranger to the police investigating Christine's case. They had even interviewed his wife, Heather Hoover, the day after she went missing. The police went to speak with Heather after discovering Calvin had once worked with Christine's father, Bob. But when the police went to speak with Heather, she had an alibi for her husband. She said he was at work the entire day that she went missing. And after that, the police walked away and never questioned her again. And 
they never even questioned Calvin Hoover to check on his alibi. Back in 1984, Calvin Hoover was 28 years old and one of the Jessup's neighbors. People who knew him described him as a drinker and a gambler. In the mid-1970s, he met and married his wife, Heather Hoover. Once they were married, he legally adopted Heather's two sons, and they eventually went on to have two more kids of their own. Both Heather and Calvin worked at Eastern Independent Telecom, a small company that set up telephone connections for businesses in the area. Heather was a dispatcher, and Calvin was an installer. Bob, Christine's father, was the lead installer. While at work, Bob and Calvin developed a friendship, and eventually, both their families became close. The Hoovers and Jessops would celebrate birthdays together. They did barbecues. Christine's mom, Janet, became especially close with Calvin's wife, Heather. The Jessops had no idea that they were becoming friends with the person who would ultimately murder their only daughter. We will likely never understand the motive behind Christine Jessup's murder. We can't sit down and ask Calvin Hoover why, why he did it. But thanks to forensic genetic genealogy and advancements in DNA testing, we finally know his name. In January 1997, Guy Marin was awarded $1.2 million in compensation for being wrongfully convicted of Christine's murder. And years later, on October 15, 2020, the Toronto police held a press conference officially naming Christine's true killer as Calvin Hoover. To share your thoughts on this week's story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash tales or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic 
Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A, Nicole L, Paula G, Nicole G, Christine B, Karen D, Sherry A, Nancy H, Michael D, Nicola, Jerry M, Brian W, James C, Natasha K, Julia S, and Jerry L. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.